New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Can you imagine having your 13-year-old son report to you that she is a girl? That's what happened to pediatrician Paria Hasori. In her memoir, we join her through the reactions of shock, resistance, grief, acceptance, and finally, pride. Transgender people have had to live in the shadows, and their stories have been underreported in mainstream media. Today, we'll learn about the hope that one day being transgender is finally normalized for everyone with our guest, Paria Hasuri. Paria Hasuri is a pediatrician, mother of three, and a transgender rights advocate. She's a proud Iranian-American and has written articles that have appeared in multiple media outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and the Huffington Post. Dr. Hasuri is the author of the memoir, Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. Join us for the next hour as we explore an honest and revealing account of a mother's journey from resistance to acceptance and ultimately to supporting her daughter's gender transition with our guest, pediatrician Dr. Paria Hasori. I'm speaking with Paria at her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Paria, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to talk to you, too, about this subject that, as I say, is so underreported. And um, I'd like to start, like, with when you first had an inkling. You you were in Thailand, and you received this phone call from your mother, who is um, staying with your kids while you and your husband are in Thailand. So describe a little bit and help us to understand what what that call was like. Yeah. So yeah, so I actually never really never had an inkling that I have that I have a, you know, uh, that one of my three children is is trans and I was I had gone on vacation with my husband, just the two of us. We had gone to Thailand. It had been years since we'd taken a trip together and and left the kids with my parents. And I actually uh, got a phone call from the school principal, um, the school vice principal. Um, 
who called to say that, um, you know, our middle child had told a teacher um, that she felt that she was in the wrong body and that she wasn't a boy and that she was a girl. And um, the thought of telling us what had, you know, she didn't know how to tell us and the thought of telling us had made her um, try to harm herself. And therefore the school had decided to call us in Thailand and had called my mother to come and, you know, pick her up from school. Um, So it was a complete, um, complete shock and came out of the blue. And I I know that not only was it a shock, but um, there were parts of you that just thought, I think you wrote about this, that, oh, it's all going to be okay. I'll just get home and have this conversation and one conversation, and, and we're going to straighten this all out. And it didn't quite turn out that way. Yeah. Yeah, because you know when she came when she came out, she was thirteen and a half, and before that, I didn't think that she had any signs whatsoever that she was transgender. So I thought, well, how is it possible that at thirteen and a half you're suddenly transgender? Um, so I just thought it's got to be some sort of confusion, attention getting, depression you know, desperate attempt at something on her part. Um, and that I had, you know, left her for a little while and, you know, who, who knows what was going on, but I would come back to Los Angeles and I would talk to her and we would straighten it out and we would move on. Um, and I thought that I would come back to LA and have one conversation with her and wrap it up and put it behind us. Right. And, and so when you did that, um, there were there were also some little indications because hadn't she had already come out as um, saying to you and your husband who is also a, a, a doctor a surgeon um, that um, she was bisexual or that he at that point yeah. was bisexual and um, and he was practicing different clothing and sort of different hair and so forth and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think when she told, and I, when I talk about her past, I always use she, even, you know, that's just what I do, even when I thought she she was a boy. But so when she, at, at 12, she told us that she thinks she's bisexual. And that was, was not an issue or a surprise or anything because, you know, we, we expect that, well, who you're, you know, that sexual or physical attraction, you know, starts to develop around puberty. And so, you know, have to have a 12 year old tell you, you know, I think I'm bisexual and attracted to both sexes is not a big surprise, but, you know, sex and, and gender and who you are are completely different things. So for her then, you know, a year later to come out um, as transgender was was a huge surprise because that was something that never in any, I had never imagined as even a remote possibility or scenario that we would find ourselves in. And even the thought that she was gay was okay. I mean, with you, I mean, you, you yeah. could accept that, I think. Mm-hmm. Was that, yeah. was that true? Yeah. Uh, th- yeah. That I really didn't have an, any issue with what her sexuality was going to be, because I think 
you know, your sexuality doesn't change who you actually are, but you're, you know, it's just your sexuality is who you're attracted to, but not who you are, but your, your gender is who you actually are. So the idea that she's somebody completely different than who I think she is, that was, you know, not acceptable to me. Right. It took you a while. Uh, Mm -hmm. You were in denial for a while and resisted for a while. I know that it was really hard on your mom because when she thought that she was going to hurt herself and she had to pick her up from school and you were in Thailand and she felt so enormously responsible and that was very difficult for your mother. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, you know, because here she's watching them for you know a week 10 days for us to go on vacation and so to find out that she had you know been hurting herself while she was you know staying with my parents while my parents were staying with them um you know that's a huge obviously responsibility on any uh, you know uh, uh, for any grandparent so um yeah after that happened my mom was like, oh, I don't know that I can stay with them again while they're teenagers. It's just too big of a responsibility. Um, and, uh, you know, s- since subsequently she has, she has changed. She has changed. Yes. But yeah, it was very difficult for my that That just brings uh, me to the question about as in your heritage as as an Iranian American. I mean, you were born in America, but then your I think your father was doing his residency in the U.S. And then after you were three years old, you moved back to Iran, and and then subsequently moved back to the U.S. Uh, But uh, in that heritage. what is what is generally socially accepted in as far as gender roles go in Iran? Yeah, I mean, I think sexuality in in general, sex is a taboo t- topic in Iran. Let alone, um, you know, being attracted to the same sex or bisexuality or pansexuality. Uh, you know, the idea of Trans is actually a little bit more accepted than the idea of being gay. And I think that's because, um, you know, it's really sex that's more of a taboo, I think, in in Iran, which is um, versus, you know, being trans is part of your identity and who you are and a different thing. So so surprisingly, like currently under the um, Islamic um, sort of governance, uh, you being transgender is not against the law, but being gay is against the law. Uh, I mean, I think for my parents, all of it was, um, you know, since my parents have, you know, we've been in the States now for 30 something years, um, my parents, you know, being gay or different sexualities is something they got comfortable with over the last, you know, five to 10 years, probably. Um, But being trans was still something that um, is foreign to almost all of us, you know, we just all of us. 
really have that much exposure. exposure exactly. Exactly. And I, I was thinking when you returned and you were talking to your child and she set out, um, she was very, very articulate about the whole subject. And just like, um, I think you speak later in the book that obviously she had done a lot of research and it wasn't a surprise to her. She had been researching a long time before uh, she told you all and and that, you know, watching YouTube or researching or for, for months. And so she was very articulate. Was that a surprise to you when you returned home and she was talking so cogently about it? Well, that part didn't surprise me because she had um, this history of becoming very immersed in, you know, various topics. And she's a very she's very intelligent and very curious. And so she had, you know, this habit of, you know, there was, you know, I talk about an instance when she was around eight years old, where she became really interested in marine biology and, you know, basically memorized an encyclopedia on, on marine biology. And so I knew that when she takes an interest in a topic she completely immerses herself in it, which is part of why I thought, okay, this trans thing that she's doing is also temporary. You know, for some reason, she got intrigued by this idea of being transgender. And so then naturally, she basically gave herself a PhD on what it is you know, to be trans, um, and then, you know, kind of spit it all back out at me <laughs> in, in one session. So, so I think that part didn't surprise me. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Paria Hasori, and she is a pediatrician and the author of the memoir Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During her child's gender change. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Paria Hasori, and she is a pediatrician and the author of Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, pariahasori.com. And let me spell her name, P-A-R-I-A, her last name, H-A-S-S-O-U-R-I. Paria Hasori 
Dimensions.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. So I wanted to ask you, you were really struggling, struggling with your own issues of where you grew up and felt really bullied in, in grade school and coming up through high school. And you were very lonely because you just kind of separated yourself. That, so can you talk about how you were projecting that onto your child? Sure. Yeah. So my family came back to the U.S. in 1983, and that was shortly after the Iran hostage crisis and a couple of years into the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and it was really the worst time for an, an Iranian to immigrate back to the U.S. And so we spent a year in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, when I was in fifth grade, and then moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and that year that I was in Madison, Wisconsin, I was bullied pretty much every day that I, that I was at school. Um, just things like being called like dark or dirty or being told to, you know, go back home, you know, that was really like verbal bullying and then like spitballs and things that fifth graders uh, do. And then we moved to Pittsburgh and in Pittsburgh, it was a lot better, but that, that year of being bullied um, really caused a lot of insecurity for me. And, and, and when we moved to Pittsburgh, we were also in a uh, predominantly white neighborhood as well. And so I really spent all of my middle school and high school years very lonely. I just had so much insecurity from, from that year of being bullied and then also just feeling like I didn't belong in Pittsburgh. And uh, so I, one of my goals had always been that, you know, when I got married and have ch had children that I would move to a bigger city where my kids would blend in and that I, you know, my kids would have a different experience than I did. And so moving to Los Angeles was really very calculated um, on my part. So I think then, you know, wanting your children to have a different experience than you've had, and then having your 13-year-old come out as trans, which is sort of the ultimate being the outsider. You know, I just thought, well, look at how my experience was. Hers could be potentially, you know, 10 times or more uh, worse. And so I, that caused me to have really a lot of fear about what her future would be like and, and really affected um, my ability to accept things and, and, and listen to her. Um, and move forward. And that all makes sense. I mean, that's what we do. Our own experiences just overlay our children and so often, and it takes a while to really sort that out, a lot of self-development to find a new way to be with them where we're not in fear, and you talk about that. And I know that another thing that you talk about is that you really doubted her um this this being really true that she was a girl mm -hmm. uh because she was coming out so late so to speak and you you as a pediatrician you understood that a lot of people a lot of children show show symptoms of this very early so can you speak to that please 
Yeah, I think, you know, actually, you know, as this is something I felt like I should know as a pediatrician, but really as pediatricians and doctors, we don't get any training on um, transgender people or gender and the, and, you know, the gender uh, spectrum. And so really what I knew about trans people was mostly from what I saw and learned in the media. And mostly what you hear is that people who are trans you know, know that there's something different starting when they're three or four or five years old. And, you know, some of them will present at that age to their parents and, and other ones may not come out until they're much, you know, till they're older or even into adulthood. But that, you know, the narrative I heard was that even the ones who come out in adulthood have known when they were young children, but suppressed it. Uh, versus, you know, for, for Ava, she, I would repeatedly question her and she would say that she didn't know when she was a child. It wasn't that she felt that she had suppressed this for the first, you know, 13 years of her, her life. Um, it really didn't, she didn't have this realization um, about her gender identity not matching her sex assigned at birth until her body started going through puberty and, and changing. And, you know, once I, you know, after I was forced to come out of this denial phase and I started doing uh, research and reading and learning, uh, you know, I came to see that uh, up to 50% or more uh, of trans people don't feel they're in the wrong body in childhood, that it does start for many of them at puberty or late later when their body starts changing is when they feel like something is not right. You you mentioned gender spectrum mm -hmm. and that's like a new idea or reality for this um, culture, which is a, mostly a binary culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's either you're male or you're female, and there's no, like, spectrum. And I, I think that it was also that, that you had thought that maybe she was on the aut autism spectrum yeah. and because she was so intelligent, mm -hmm. but yet socially uh, a little bit fragile. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so... Speak to this spectrum that you've learned about through this process. Yeah, I mean, I think we do live in a very binary world where you're either male or female. And, you know, this is what men do and what boys do and how they behave. And this is what, you know, women and girls do and how they behave. And there are people, you know, there's the majority of people feel either male or female. But there are people who feel both male and female or more one than the other. And, and there's people who feel neither. Um, so gender really can be on a spectrum. It's not so binary. Um, and the other thing is, you know, with the, the gender roles we impose on people and that we have, you know, if we weren't so strict with gender roles, um, then maybe this whole gender spectrum thing we would look at, you know, differently too, because if, if we didn't assign roles to the different genders, then maybe somebody could be more of just who they, you know, who they are. I mean, you know, the, the, 
roles confuses some of it too, I think, you know. You might be saying that there may be many, many, many more transgender people who never get to express that and they just have just sublimated that all of their lives as you as an advocate to open our thinking up that we may see more and more of this it may even in nature i think that you you can see this also is is stand in nature right Yes, and it, and it's not that suddenly there's going to be more trans people because there, are, you know, they, there's always been trans people, but that as we talk about it and accept it more, people who've been, you know, either suppressing it or um, just living, you know, a sort of a closeted life um, as a gen, you know, as a gender that doesn't feel right for them will feel maybe more comfortable uh, and safe to start to come out and and live as their true selves. I I learned a new term uh, in reading your book, and that's cisgender, Mm -hmm. and it spells C-I-S, gender, cisgender, and and that's that gender that you are, are your birth gender. What's a proper term for it? Gender is sort of when the gender you identify with matches the one assigned to you uh, based on your genitals at birth. So for example, if I was born with a vagina, they said that I'm a girl and I do identify as a girl or female, therefore I'm transgender. So my own sense of gender identity (laughs) matches the uh, you know, what was assigned to me at birth based on my genitals uh, versus somebody who's transgender, you know, um, would be somebody who was um, assigned a gender based on their genitals at birth. And that is not the gender that feels, you know, right or that they identify with. And, so and, cisgender. <laughs> cisgender. and their designation, they would, they would say they would use initial MTF. For male to female, is that right? I'm MDF or something like that. So there's a lot of different, um, you know, terms which do change uh, over time as well. (laughs) But right, so a lot. So for example, it might be M to F, which means male to female, or F T M, which is female to male. Um, Another way for you know to talk about, for example, somebody who was born. Uh, assigned male but doesn't feel that way would be somebody who's either assigned male at birth or designated male at birth um so there are multiple different um abbreviations and and terms um that can be used for the same thing and 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 some of that changes uh, over time Uh, and that's it's hard to keep up with all all of that and to be speaking correctly to Mm -hmm different people who are are part of that whole um, uh, social order uh, mm-hmm. and it, so we're, we're all kind of tiptoeing into it to learn how to to talk about it and how to be with it and and all of that so I would I would say that um, that as you were exploring many therapists, there was one therapist, I think, that it was just, you finally just got this great therapist. I, I think it was Stern. Uh, mm-hmm. Was it Dr. Stern? Yeah. And he may have been the one who said, 
um, being female is in your mind. He just assured Ava that it was how she felt in her mind. And you explained that you really felt the same way because you have felt female. Uh, and if you no longer had breast or vagina or whatever is direct at me and whatever, you still would feel female. I think that that's a, a, a good point. And uh, we'll talk more about this in just a moment. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Paria Hasori, and she is a doctor, a um, pediatrician, and she's the author of Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Paria Hasuri, the author of Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. Let's talk about the support groups that you finally found. Uh, this, uh, What a relief when you, I, I think it was, um, what, family, uh, transforming family was mm-hmm. one of them. Uh, so talk about being there and and how they divided you all up, I, I found that really interesting when you went. You went without Ava the first time. And yes. what was that like for you to go to that place? Yeah. So it had actually been suggested to me to go to a support group uh, much earlier than when I finally ended up in one. Um, and I myself had resisted going because it felt like going would be admitting that I had a trans child, right? So, you know, I had to really wait till I felt ready or was just finally desperate to to end up there. Um, And so I decided the first time that I wouldn't take Ava with me, um, that I wanted to go check it out for myself. And um, so I went and initially we all convened in in a really big room and then they sort of divided us um, up into different groups of, you know, younger kids, um, teens, and then teens would get divided um, based on gender. And, um, and then the parents got divided based on whether their kids were pre pre puberty or or post puberty. So I ended up in a a room full of maybe 40 or 50 parents of trans kids who are all post puberty. And that first support group meeting was one of the most difficult two hours of my life. And I cried through most of it, but it was also uh, one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life and and really what I needed. And I thought that I was going to go there. And when these other parents spoke, their story would be different than mine and that it would just confirm that I didn't have a trans kid and I could then pack up my bags and go home. <laughs> and And what happened is I you know, heard at least half the room 
give a story that was very similar to mine. Uh, you know, at least half the room were parents of teens who had come out as teens or later, and the parents had been completely blindsided like I had been. And so for the first time, I felt like I'm not alone. And I also felt like I need to start listening to her because if there's so many other people who've had the same experience and their kids have presented the same way, then it's possible that what she's telling me is true and that it's time to get her, you know, with the right therapist and the right doctor and and to get things going. And I know that that at that point you were you were still not using uh, feminine pronouns right. for her, even though she had asked you to do that. It, yeah. it, that was difficult that that you weren't doing that. Yeah, she, yeah. She had asked me if if at home we could practice using um, a girl's name and female pronouns, um, and I had said to her, absolutely not. That we would not. You, that if there was a time where she was ready to come out to the world and everybody was using them, we would too, but before that we wouldn't. And that was really one of the biggest mistakes. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes in that first uh, six months, but that was certainly one of the big ones. You know, she wanted to at home in, in what should be a safe environment, get a feel of what it would be like to uh, use a different name and different pronouns and and try that out before you know doing it out in the world which can be very very scary and I had said no and um, you know after this meeting I it still took me a while before I did it but we started sort of having the conversations about thinking to to start to you know call her by a different name and and, and different pronouns and I, I think that you, you mentioned something about um, when she came out, when she came out of therapy sessions, of course, you're sitting in the waiting room and you're turning your child over to someone else. Yeah. That was difficult unto itself. Uh, maybe you could describe that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the especially with the very first therapist we started out with, it was really difficult for me to have her sitting in a room with somebody telling them everything and then they don't tell you anything about what you know the therapist doesn't tell you um, anything about what happened um, and what they had talked about which is how therapy is supposed to be you know it is confidential um, but for me that was so difficult I felt like I had absolutely no control um, and I was, I was worried that, you know, I felt like as her mother, I knew her better and that I would be able to give the therapist a better idea of the whole picture of who she'd been and that she would be sitting in therapy just talking about gender and they wouldn't get this sense of who she's been her whole life. So that was really, really difficult for me. And I would just you know, pace the waiting room um, with my heart in my throat, you know, the entire time she was in, in therapy. And then, you know, she'd come out and they'd say, okay, see you next week with, you know, no feedback to me. And it was very difficult for me. And and sometimes Ava would be on that drive home would be like your mother comforting you as you drove home and and yeah. would say it's okay it's okay yeah. she she was so sensitive 
uh, to you during this whole process. I was so impressed with that, that she, both she and her brother were extremely sensitive. I think you described one, one moment when um, you were really in a kind of depression, and I think that your husband was uh, out of town, in mm-hmm. fact, out of the country, yeah. and and um, your other son, your mm-hmm. Ava's sibling, older brother, um, said goodnight, and you said goodnight, and just hearing your voice, he knew something was wrong, yeah. and he came in the room, and I was so impressed with that, that he, that he came in the room, and he just held you, and and he was there with you. So you just have some beautiful, beautiful children that uh, yeah. that you've raised that are so uh, sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely very sensitive. I mean, definitely Ava um, was trying to mother me during this period a lot, you know, more than I was trying to mother her. Um, and she was very aware of how difficult it was for me. Um, and I think, you know, that incident with my son where he came in and comforted me, this is before we had told them about it. We weren't openly talking about anything, but there was clearly something going on in our household and there was clearly a lot of stress and tension in our, in our home. And, um, he's, he's, he's very, very sensitive and he's always been very good at picking up when, when there's stress and tension going on and, and sort of knowing what he needs to do. Yeah. I, I think that there was, uh, maybe it was Dr. Stern who said something so powerful that really, I think, got to you because of uh, your own background and being bullied. He said, you don't want to be your your child's first bully. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually at that first, it wasn't Dr. Stern, it was a therapist at the first uh, transforming family support group meeting they have um, a lot of times they have professional facilitators to help and so a therapist there um, and he wasn't directing it specifically to me he was sort of directing it to all the parents but he said you don't want to be your child don't be your child's first bully Um, and you know he went on to say you know no you know, even if this ends up being a temporary thing, you know, no child ever says, oh, I wish my parents hadn't supported me through that time when I was going, you know, through this. But but the sentence, don't be your child's first bully, just hit me so very hard because, you know, I realized that, you know, throughout my, you know, when I was going through my struggles in middle school and high school, I mean, home was my safe place. And really the only place where I felt like I could be myself and I was comfortable. And when I was, you know, in school, I was never comfortable in my own skin, but at home I was. Um, And it just made me realize that we hadn't made our home a safe space for Ava because we were in denial about what was going on. And she'd asked us to, you know, call her by using female pronouns. And we had said no. And, And it just made me... Um, realized for the first time that she probably, you know, she maybe doesn't look at at home as a safe space. Um, And the idea that my home isn't a safe space for any of my kids is, um, I mean, it just gives me chills thinking about it right now. Yes, yes. And I I know that um, 
you started to notice and started to wake up to the mood of Ava, like, um, let's say, uh, she would come out of a therapy session and she had spent a whole hour being um, a, a woman, being a girl, right. being acknowledged as a girl in, a, in that whole therapy session. And she'd come out and she would just be radiant. She would be so happy. And, and you started noticing when that would happen more and more, when she was really happy. And did that help to kind of convince you that, hey, maybe this is the real deal? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you start seeing your, and, and it, especially, you know, later as we started to, you know, accept, like when you start seeing your child being happy and and thriving and their demeanor changing, it's very hard not to then <laughs> have to sort of follow, you know, suit and, and, and accept, you know, what, what's going on. So I think, um, you know, and, and her, uh, you know, Dr. Stern, her, you know, therapist, when he sat down with me to tell me, you know, after he'd met with her for a while that he really did think she was a girl, you know, he said to me, you know, I say that she's a girl, not because of what she wears or what makeup she puts on, but because for the 15 minutes that she's in this room and she gets to be seen for who she is and just be a girl, her entire demeanor changes. And that's why she's a girl, you know, has nothing to do with what she's wearing or growing out her hair or the makeup she's putting on. You were very fortunate to, to have such a great therapist there at that point that you felt you could really trust, yes. that you could trust what he he was observing. And, and somehow that helped you a lot, didn't yeah. it? So he was the fourth therapist, you know, we, we went to. And I think a lot of it was my fault with the therapist prior to her was me not being ready to hear it. And I think by the time I got to Dr. Stern, I was ready to hear it. Um, but the other thing was that, you know, Dr. Stern was very confident in his, you know, assessment. I mean, he, he said, all he does is work with transgender teens and, and young adults. So this was his, his definitely his area and his specialty. And you know, he very confidently said to me, based on my, you know, years of experience, and this is what I've been doing, your child you know, is a girl that, you know, the ones before, I really needed somebody to be willing to like make that statement for me and say that they're making it with confidence. And, and the therapists before were, you know, were more like, well, we'll, you know, help her explore this and figure this out. Mm -hmm. Um I'm here with Dr. Paria Hasori, pediatrician and author of Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
my guest today is Paria Hasuri, and she's the author of the memoir Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. Some may wonder, like, how long was this process for you from the time you were in Thailand till the time that you really accepted and you were then using the pronouns and she was at least coming out in the family? Yeah. So from the day we got the call in Thailand to us starting to kind of come out of denial and accept her was probably about between six to nine months. By the time it was nine months, we had told her siblings and started to use um, the name Ava and, and the she, her pronouns at home, although she still wasn't out to other people. So at, at home at that point, she was Ava. And, and uh, when we were out of the home, she was still went by her old name. And um, for us to, and then it took me, you know, took a couple months for us to be able to get her into Children's Hospital of Los Angeles to begin a medical transition. So, so from when she first came out to starting her medical transition was about one year, you know, after she first came out to us. So when when it really happened that her siblings knew for sure, and and her close friends, mm-hmm. how was that? How did they respond? And were you afraid about how that would work out? Yeah, I mean, by the time we really told her siblings, I wasn't too worried about it because she had, you know, she had started to wear dresses and, you know, grow out her hair and do things. So they they obviously knew something was going on. Uh, I was I had been worried initially that their relationships would change, you know, when she came out. And really her siblings had no issue with it whatsoever and their relationships didn't change at all. That's very reassuring to to people who are going through this. Yes. And you know, and she had come out to a few people, close friends at school, which was fine. And then, you know, about a year after she came out to us, she came out to the entire uh, world and when she came out to the entire school and everybody um again the children the kids at school uh they were 95% of them were totally fine and and in fact once she was able to be her authentic self she was able to make more friends and and be happier so sort of the opposite of what i had projected based on my fears and my lonely years you know happened that she um wasn't didn't become this outsider and, and and lonely once she was able to be her authentic self she actually had more friends and uh was much less lonely than she had been as a younger child and I, I think one of the indications for you was you said that um, Ava, as a child, as a young person, she was really squirmy-wormy, I would say. She did not like to be hugged or held at all. But once she was out as a, a girl, mm-hmm. she was like hugger extreme, yeah. right? Yes. And that, that still continued. So, you know, even though when she was a kid, you know, she never had what we thought were signs of being trans, but she 
She had difficulty connecting with people and making friends. She always only had a couple good friends, but not, you know, a lot of friends. Um, and she had difficulty with like physical affection and, and didn't like physical affection. And, and I don't think she really knew, you know, why, you know, but uh, once she was accepted for who she was and she started transitioning, you know, not only did she start making a lot more friends, but she also became so much more comfortable with her body. And, you know, now she gives hugs, you know, all the time initiates hugs. She's very physically, you know, affectionate. Um, so she really, uh, that was a big, big change. Um, and really pretty remarkable to watch. I, I recall a story of a good friend of mine who worked with someone who went through the uh, gender change. And uh, when she she was out as a girl, and she talked about how when she would go into a restroom as a girl, it was such a different experience than from being in a boy's restroom. And the girls were all like touching each other and say, oh, I love that lipstick, or let me hold your baby, or, or can I do this for you? Or they were just, oh, just so... It was such a different um, society, so mm -hmm. a, a whole different culture, and it just like happened overnight for mm -hmm. this person. Uh, as as he was, he she went through this this change, and now uh, yeah. I, I always remember that story. I you know one of the things that you talked about in the book uh, you you shared, and it made me cry. I just burst into tears, and this was one of your father's oldest friends. Mm -hmm. um, his um, you called him Amu, uh, mm -hmm. like meaning uncle, yeah. and um, uh, Riza. And he was in his seventies, and he wrote uh, a letter to and sent flowers uh, to Ava with a card. Can you describe that? It just made me cry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the, the first time we got a, car, a piece of mail in Ava's name. It was a card and a bouquet of flowers that had come from what my, one of my father's best friends, who is also, you know, an Iranian man in his mid-70s. Um, and he was the first person to send a card and flowers that said, you know, Ava, we're proud of you and, and we're love you and we love you. And it just, it made me cry and burst into tears because, you know, part of me worried about uh, my parents and how they were going to explain this, you know, to their friends and how would their friends react. And so this friend had just taken the initiative to say, Hey, we're here. And, you know, it, and it's, and it's okay. And, and wasn't, was doing that for me, was doing that for my parents. Um, and it was, um, really, really very, very touching, uh, moment, you know, and, um, obviously really significant for for my yeah. and he's he's read the he's read the book and multiple times now he read the book and then he listened to the audiobook version and he's just been so incredibly supportive and i have to say my parents friends i mean most of their close friends have read the book and been so incredibly supportive and sent my parents, you know, emails and texts and called them. And, and that's been really, really lovely to see because these are, you know, all people in their mid seventies. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just great. 
Yeah, I know, and it makes me cry just hearing it again. Um, I'd I'd like to to uh, spend a little bit of time uh, at the towards the end of the book. You actually do the legal name change, mm-hmm. and you describe the whole courtroom scene. And there's another time that I cry too, when uh, when you're describing it and how the judge treated. Ava differently from all the other people in the room. There were no other like trans people in right. in the room. Right. They were all had other reasons. They were changing their name. And can you describe how yeah. that was? Yeah. So the so it, we were at court to legally change her name and gender, and along with maybe ten other people, they're changing their name, but all for other reasons. And for every person, you know, the judge would call them up by their old name. So, you know, he would be like, okay, Pat Johnson, come up. Okay. So Pat Johnson, you want to be, um, you know, Joe Jackson, I'm just making up totally random names, you know? And so, you know, why, and, um, you know, and does, you know, anybody object to this name change or not? And the person would say why they're changing their um, name. And um, he would ask if anybody had any objections and they'd say no. And then the next person would come up and he would say their old name, what they wanted their new name to be, and if they had any objections. And and for Ava, you know, trans people really don't like their, um, you know, old name or what they call their dead name. Um which I call the birth name, you know, uh, I mentioned. And so, you know, when Ava came up, he did not mention what her old name was. He just looked at her and said, okay, you want your name to be Ava? And she said, yes. And he said, okay, done, signed something, like hit his little gavel, um, you know, didn't mention the old name, didn't ask the audience if anybody objected, you know, it was just done really smoothly. Didn't even ask her why. No. No. And, and, you know, I mean, he knew that the reason, because the paper also asked for a gender change and obviously he didn't announce that she was having a gender change. So uh, he just, it was just no questions, no asking about the old name, just really um, simple and really handled very beautifully with a lot of sensitivity. So in your advocacy work, I mean, you can see that there are some people and some teachers, uh, some doctors, quite a few people that are very sensitive to this. But there's a lot of work to be done, too. And that's what this uh, book is contributing to as we go into the last minute of this interview. Do you have anything to say about being an advocate for transgender people? You know, I think the best way you can be an advocate is actually to just get to know one trans person, really get to know them. And I, I think if you do that, actually, the advocacy will follow and uh, everything will change after that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm just so appreciative of this book and the work that you're doing and how you've shared it with all of us in It just furthers us along in all of our education and to be a kinder, more informed culture. I've been speaking with Paria Hasuri, a pediatrician. She's the author of Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, pariahasuri.com, and she spells her name P-A-R-I-A. 
H-A-S-S-O-U-R-I dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3717. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.